Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Free Reads. Here's one of the most common questions we writers get asked. Who is your favorite writer? My own answer depends on who asks, to some extent. I would have to say that Mark Twain and F. Scott Fitzgerald are near the top of my list, if only because I have reread them pretty much throughout my life. But then I have often read Robert A. Heinlein, in part for pleasure, but in part to understand why my attitudes about his work have undergone such a profound revision. This is unlike my attitudes toward the fiction of Ursula Le Guin and Cordwainer Smith, for example, which I still cherish. But if truth be told, the one writer whom I return to again and again with pleasure pretty much undiminished is Raymond Chandler. Chandler is the master of the amazing sentence. The house itself was not so much. It was smaller than Buckingham Palace, rather gray for California, and probably had fewer windows than the Chrysler building. Check this sentence. It was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. And this sentence. My stomach burned from the last drink. I wasn't hungry. I lit a cigarette. It tasted like a plumber's handkerchief. Here's another sentence. I was as empty of life as a scarecrow's pockets. How about this? I needed a drink. I needed a lot of life insurance. I needed a vacation. I needed a home in the country. What I had was a coat, a hat, and a gun. I could go on, but the thing is, if you're listening to The Last Judgment, you are about to hear plenty of neo-Chandlerisms. Because one of the reasons I wrote this story is that Raymond Chandler isn't around anymore to amaze me, so I'm doing my level best to amaze myself in his style. I have no idea what he would make of this tale. Probably wouldn't much care for it, given his politics and mindset. But I like to think he would smile at some of the sentences before he shut the podcast down. I hope you're smiling, too. Although Faye Hardaway won't be smiling much in part three of The Last Judgment. Six. Chestnut Avenue ran past Old Courthouse Square, which was busy on a warm July night. The city mothers were sponsoring a concert, a bunch of grannies bleeding oldies from before the disappearance. Music had skipped my generation. We'd been too busy trying to survive to learn the cello. But the sooner we kissed all that cock nostalgia goodbye and started writing tunes of our own, the saner I'd be. The crowd backed all the way to the peace statues of Rosalind Franklin and Daniel Ellsberg. I had to walk my bike past the lemonade stand and the carts with ice cream and sushi and hot dogs. The Tommies and Jane seemed more interested in the free food than the singing. We all looked up when the devil flapped over, streaking toward Bot Town. I lit a cigarette, Sharifa doesn't let me smoke at home, and watched for Andy Descano as I passed through the crowd. Beyond the square, Chestnut climbed into Foy's gardens. In the crazy times, a series of fires had burned through its row houses and modest storefronts, there had been nobody to put them out. 
After came scavengers, who gnawed the charred bones of the neighborhood and scared off most of those still living there. For a while, the only inhabitants were the few crazies who didn't understand how everything had changed, but in the last few years it had become part of Bot Town. Although depression and suicide continued to squeeze our shattered world, the population had stabilized at just over a billion, even as the number of bots continued to grow. Supposedly, there was now one bot for every five women on Earth. Most of them propped up our pretend economy, doing jobs we didn't want to do. Recently, they'd swarmed the parts of the city we had abandoned, rehabbing and rebuilding. Never mind that nobody wanted to live in bot town, in part because they'd always had some cocked ideas about architecture. Left to their own, they built nightmares. Windows became mirrors. Stairs climbed to dead ends. A favorite trick was to divide big spaces into a beehive of narrow closets. Then there were the rooms with stalactite ceilings or delicate glass floors. These had no doors, only portholes through which they could be admired. Bots loved sirens and wainscoting and open plumbing. Above all, they lived to paint. Walls, floors, ceilings, doors, concrete, metal, wood, plastic, even trees and rocks. Chestnut Avenue sported zebra stripes in the 1200 block. Sure, a bot would straighten what was crooked if you asked, but the next bot to come along would fold your floor plans into origami and then get busy. I could see that some human must have taken charge of 1217 Chestnut, which was sandwiched between a burnt-out foundation and a rubble-strewn lot. The Skip House was a tasteful brown Victorian with a slate roof and a bay window the size of a buffalo. I could imagine living there with Sharifa and Aisa if it hadn't been on the wrong side of nowhere with no shopping, no schools, and no neighbors but bots and empty lots. As I climbed the front steps, I could see the door was ajar. There was a newish sneaker in front of it with a dark spatter across white laces. Knock, knock, I called. I slid into the hall. Fists curled to stop the tingle in my fingertips. Even a detective who said eggy could smell trouble with this setup. Who's there? I muttered to no one in particular. Rooms to either side were filled with dusk and not much else. To the right, a parlor and a couple of folding chairs aimed at a wall screen. To the left, a table made of a sheet of plywood and two sawhorses. There was a pizza box on it, some dirty paper plates. Andy Toscano? Ahead, a hallway washed in shadow and a smudge of stairs, and bigger spatters. I was wishing I'd brought the air taser, wishing I'd stayed home with Sharifa, when I heard a door bang at the back of the house. Then I was running. It was dark and then dim as I burst into the kitchen. Something jerked on the other side of the screen door and fell up off the back steps. I tore the door open. The sleek torpedo of a body shot into the air, wings scooping air with a twenty-foot span. I know what I saw, and I know what I heard. An angry devil makes a sharp grating crow, like gears stripping. I watched the thing wheel overhead and flail for downtown. But I was pretty sure that nobody was going to believe me. We see devils all the time, but they don't come out to play with us very often. It's about the only thing about them I'm grateful for. I went back inside and snapped on the light. The kitchen had been just a blur as I raced through, but now I could see that whoever had been staying at the skip house had no talent for housekeeping. The sink was filled with mismatched pots, the windows were murky, and the counters needed wiping down. The utensil drawer hung open. There were boxes of Cheerios, ginger nips, and fruit loops on top of the refrigerator. The body was slumped in front of it, head down, knees tucked under the torso, as if she were praying to breakfast. Her feet stuck out. One was bare. I rolled her over to see if she was alive, to see if she was Andy Toscano. She wasn't. 
No corpse is pretty, but this one was particularly hard on the eyes. The kid was slim, twenty-something, dressed like a Tommy in camo pants, a chain-link belt, and a Yankettes T-shirt. There was some bruising on the right arm, but it was the head that had gotten most of the killer's attention. Blood was coming out of one ear. Two ribbons of it trickled into the open mouth. The mouth was missing a couple of teeth, and one eye had been punched shut. The other had rolled up its socket, as if the poor girl had been looking to heaven for rescue, or at least relief. Apparently God didn't deliver in this part of town. She appeared to have been transitioning into a he. He'd had chest reconstruction. I didn't check for bottom surgery. From the dark spidery mustache and sideburns, I guessed he was well into the hormone replacement. I didn't know where to put this information quite yet. On the shelf next to the Descano kid, at least. I would have to call the cops eventually, but since the dead Tommy didn't seem to be any hurry, I went through the place turning on lights. The bathroom at the top of the stairs had a shower with no door. The toilet was dry because the supply pipe was just a stub, but there was a plastic bucket filled with water beside it. Both bedrooms upstairs had mattresses on the floor. The first was empty. The one he'd been using had a sleeping bag decorated with rocket ships on it and a backpack beside it. I pulled on gloves and unpacked T-shirts, jeans, silky boxers, and white socks. At the bottom was a pair of lace-up military boots, size seven and a half, same as the lonely sneaker. Shampoo, toothbrush, but no toothpaste, and one bent tampon in a side pocket. In the storm flap, a cheap multi-tool, a flashlight, and a dead sidekick with a cracked bezel. It wasn't much to leave behind, not that a Tommy in a skip house would be drawing up a will. I was repacking the sorry lot of it when I heard a sidekick chirp. It wasn't mine. 7. I made myself lighter than air as I floated downstairs, listening for a second chirp. There, a little muffled at the front of the house. I found it under the pizza box on the makeshift table, hit answer, and said nothing. I was due for a miracle. We're in. It sounded like the Descano kid. He'll do the operation. I held the sidekick at arm's length and dredged up an anonymous grunt to encourage him. Hmm? Day after tomorrow. I tried another grunt. No miracle. Beetle? I let the silence stretch until it broke. Who is this? He said. My name is Faye Hardaway, Andy. He thought that over. Put Beetle on. He can't come to the phone, I said. He said I should pick up and take the message if Andy called. So the operation is on Thursday? What are you doing with my sidekick? It was just where you left it. I tried to sound amused, as in we do such silly things sometimes, don't we? Under the pizza box. Put Beetle on. Can't. He, uh... We had a devil here, Andy. Things got kind of cocked. A devil? Did it get the Bosch? How should I know? Game over. I might have laughed if there hadn't been a dead Tommy down the hall. Beetle didn't tell me where it was. Andy's shout made the sidekick quack like one of Aisa's ducks. Who the hell are you? Take it easy, Andy, I said. I'm a friend. The hell you are. He broke the connection. Be that way, then, I said to the silence. I wanted to feel good. All the stoplights had turned green on Hardaway Street, and I was coasting downhill toward an easy two hundred bucks. Time to clear space for me in the gumshoe hall of fame. I'd cracked the case in less than a day. The only problem was that it was covered in blood. That didn't used to bother me so much. I wondered what being a mommy had cost me. The hard part wasn't finding the missing painting, now that I had a pretty good idea that it was on the premises. There aren't many places to hide something in a skip house. It took me all of ten minutes before I found it tucked into a Ziploc bag and buried in the box of Fruit Loops. How had the devil missed it? 
The clue was in a yellow starburst right on the front of the box. Free prize inside. I contemplated the hard part as I worked the painted rectangle of wood out of the bag. I knew Maud Descano would expect me to rewrite recent history so the cops didn't jam me or drop this killing on her golden doorstep. The Bosch was just a bit bigger than one of Maud's books. I glanced at the image to make sure I had what Maud wanted. I was no art historian, but it seemed to me that old Jerome had been playing a joke on his patrons. The paint was brighter than in the pics Kirby had sent me, but it still had all the charm of a stain. The devil looked nothing like ours. It was naked and bent way over so that it grinned back at the viewer through its spread legs, mooning us, no question about it. There was an arrow or something sticking out of its ass. Stupid cock tricks. The wings were outstretched, but they looked more like they belonged on a butterfly than a mass-murdering alien. As I slipped the thing back into the bag, I noticed it wasn't in very good shape. A few flakes of tea-colored paint had lifted, but were not yet loose. I couldn't see how this thing was worth getting dead over, or why a devil might kill for it if that was what had just happened. I raced upstairs and finished repacking Beetle's stuff, then back to Andy's sidekick in the pizza room. I brought the record of the last call up and then bumped our sidekicks, using my scrub app to make it go away. Sure, any record could be retrieved, but the cops would need some serious data forensics to discover that there was anything missing in the first place. Then I searched Andy's contact list for doctors. I found three and copied them, but I was running out of time. The cops would wonder why I had taken so long to call this murder in. I ran to my bike and pumped like my hair was on fire. One block, two. I remembered a wall in front of the vacant library because some bot had painted the stones tomato red. I muscled a capstone aside, settled a block of wood into the space between it and the next course, and pushed the cap back into place. On the way back, I called Sharifa and tried to tell her as little as I could. Being out of breath helped. I said that I had the Bosch and that we were definitely taking a vacation as soon as she could get off work. I told her that I had found a dead Tommy, that I didn't know who he was and that the cops would be coming any minute. I told her I'd probably spend the night downtown telling my story twenty-seven times to stony faces. I asked if she could get Aisa to daycare. I told her I loved her. I left out the devil in the blood, but that was all right. Leaving stuff out was another part of our deal. It was forty, maybe forty-five minutes since I had spotted the devil. I looked around the kitchen one last time, but really, what did I have to worry about? Sure, I'd moved the body, tampered with evidence, and lifted a clue that provided a motive for murder. But I got along with cops. Cops were some of my best friends. Why, I was practically a cop myself, except for the badge, the paycheck, and the selfless desire to serve and protect. I think, I said to Beetle, it's time we had some law. He didn't object. I lit a cigarette and stepped outside to wait. 8. For the next five hours, I got passed up the chain of command as the bearer of bad news that nobody wanted to hear. A Detective Timms, whom I'd never met, took my statement at the crime scene, then asked her partner, Lisa Agar, who used to walk a beat near my office, to escort me downtown. There I ran into Lieutenant Stevie Smick. She invited me to a tete-a-tete in a cozy, windowless, concrete-block room, furnished with a table trimmed with gouges, or maybe teeth marks, three mismatched chairs and a coffee shelf with a half-full pot, and three mugs stolen from good fillers. There was no ashtray, so I dropped the dead butts on the floor. We chatted for a couple of hours. Stevie still blamed me for that riot at the Tin Shark, so we had a lot to catch up on. Later, Deputy Chief C.G. Little joined us, despite the inconvenient hour. She was a bulky woman, subtle as a hammer, rumpled and up past her bedtime. She reminded me of what would happen to me if my story didn't hold up. I knew why I was barbecued, and it wasn't because of the murder of one Bahita Berry, sometimes known as Beetle. It was because of the devil. Let's go over this again, said Stevie Smick. I checked the weather. Sunset was 8.34. Your call came at 9.21. A lot of unexplained time, Hardaway? 
which I already explained. I was hired to find Anne Descano. I was told that she was staying in skip houses, probably including this one. I decided to check it. I got there after sunset. When I found the body, I thought Descano might be connected, so I searched the house. And went through the dead girl's things. And went through the dead girl's things. I turned both hands palm up on the battered table, which I told you, and you didn't even have to ask. And what about the sidekick? It was dead. I didn't have time to charge it. Which one? I only found one. I think we've rehearsed this part, Lieutenant, five, no, six times. My next line is, was there another? You searched the house, she sneered. You should know. I tilted towards C.G., looking for sympathy. She gave me ice-cold nothing. How long had the girl been dead? Stevie asked. Like I said, I'm no coroner. You want me to guess? Ten, maybe twenty minutes. How about half an hour? And you arrived when? Again, I wasn't paying attention exactly. After sunset, maybe 8.45, 8.50. Bullshit. C.G. Little stirred. She wasn't playing good or bad cop, just a bleak cop. You just heard her tell you that sunset was 8.34, she said. You say you ID a devil at 8.50. Why don't we believe you? It would have been dark by then. It's July 12th. There was one you brought me in, chief. I wanted her in the conversation. Night takes its time in the summer. There was plenty of light. Maybe it was a crow, said Stevie. Yeah, and maybe it was Mary Poppins. I lit a cigarette and realized that I was down to two. I needed to start conserving. Stevie wasn't about to let me step out to buy another pack. Look, if I had left the devil out of this, then we'd all be snug in bed by now. Why would I want to spend half the night with you two? What's your devil's motive for murder, C.G. said. This Bahita Barry is nobody. I grinned at her don't know. It was the first time that either of them had acknowledged that there might have been a devil. And why leave the body, said Stevie. It could have just disappeared her. The thought had occurred to me, too. But devils did away with the men forty-some years ago. They don't flap around disappearing people these days. The bots say it violates their code of wisdom. Apparently it's okay to disappear a couple of billion men, but not a single inconvenient woman. I did witness a devil disappear someone once, but it was to prevent a murder my murder, as a matter of fact. I don't say the devil killed her, I said. For all I know, it just stumbled into this mess, same way I did. But it ran. At least that's your story. Maybe it thought I was the killer coming back. Why, said Stevie. It could have just disappeared you if it got worried. Nobody would have known or cared. I'd been able to keep the anger in my pocket until then, but now it swelled up and started ripping seams. I've got a wife and a kid, I said, and I've got friends. Some of them are even cops. Cops who don't squeal when a devil pinches them. Stevie gave me a lizard look. That's enough, Hardaway, said C.G. No, it isn't, Chief. Maybe Lieutenant Smick slept through the part where the devil's wiped three and a half billion people off the planet. And maybe she thinks it's cute that there's nothing we can do about that. But real cops don't roll over for mass murderers. You wouldn't know a real cop if she sat on your face. Smick, enough, said C.G. wearily. What's next, hair pulling? Swiping her lunch money? Stevie squirmed on her chair. I gave the Chief a laugh to show her I was paying attention. I hate the devil, said C.G., and so does Lieutenant Smick, but that doesn't make a saint out of you, Hardaway. Someone cracked the door open and murmured, Chief? I'll be right there. C.G. glared at us. You two kiss and make up while I'm gone. She shut the door behind her. You got hot there, Seamus, said Stevie. That's not like you. You play too rough, Girl Scout. She got up and poured me a cup of coffee I didn't want. What do you expect? She said it in front of me. I expect someone to believe me. She laughed. What, the gag about not finding Descano's sidekick? Pretty thin, Hardaway. You're better than that. Come on, when did you get to the scene? Really? I dipped my finger into the coffee and licked it. How do you drink the sludge? 
We don't, she grinned. We inflict it on the perps. Then she lowered her voice and changed into the good cop. Bot Town has gone quiet on this one. At least the Chestnut neighborhood has. They didn't see the devil? Not only that, but they never saw Barry, Descano, or you. Usually bots come forward on these things, but I get the feeling that the circus could have paraded up Chestnut shooting skyrockets and they wouldn't have noticed. The bots are covering up. Why? Maybe to protect your devil? She knocked twice on the tabletop. That's about the only part of your story we believe. So why don't you help me out now and tell me the rest? C.G. Little opened the door to the interrogation room. Let's go, Hardaway. You have visitors. I could tell Stevie didn't like that. Who had the clout to interrupt a police investigation? 9. Greta Sams was a large, round woman who had always had trouble buying clothes. She kept trying for swank when she was built for comfort. Her breasts and belly stretched her gray silk blouse, making the placket gap between buttons. Her metallic brocade skirt clung to her hips, betraying the outline of grainy panties. She had limp curls the color of steel wool, and there was a shadow of sweat on her sallow face, even though the air conditioning in the chief's office was blasting enough cold for a penguin convention. But appearance hadn't kept her from getting elected mayor three times in the last twenty years. It probably helped. She'd been able to convince voters that brains trumped style. "'I beg your pardon, chief,' she said amiably. "'But we were expecting Miss Hardaway only. This officer would be... smick.' Stevie tried to look tough when she spotted the visitors, but her eyes went round as quarters. "'Bahita Berry is my homicide.' "'Of course.' The mayor dismissed her with a wave of her meaty hand. "'We have no intention of interfering with your investigation.' "'Then why are they here?' Stevie kept staring at the other two in the room. "'May I call you Faye?' Even though the cops were still with us, it was as if Mayor Sams had closed the door on them. "'This is Sturrow,' she said, indicating a dull gray bot. "'And Siren.' The devil was perched on the chief's credenza, translucent wings outspread like some nightmare shorebird. It weighed in at maybe eleven or twelve kilos, and was sleek as a torpedo, ugly as rust. It turned, and I could see my reflection in its compound eyes— there were a lot of me there, and none of us looked happy. Miss Hardway, I understand that you and Siren are acquainted? Acquainted was one word for it. Siren had hired me to find a certain Chrysler a couple of years ago, which I did. That made everybody happy except for a tough named Graziana, who tried to stab me to death in my office. She was the one I'd seen get disappeared. Of course, it was all hushed up and no charges had ever been filed. Otherwise, there might have been riots. Siren recalls with bright satisfaction a previous employment, said the bot. How the devils communicated with the bots was a mystery. All we knew was that the bots did all the talking for them. Siren considers that Faye Hardaway has demonstrated true superiority. Does that mean I can use it as a reference, I said, just to hear if my voice would squeak? The devil opened its maw and made a sound like sucking the last drops of soda through a straw. The bot did not translate. Siren has asked to meet with you in private, Faye, said the mayor. Do you have any objection? I do. Stevie actually pushed past the chief to get Sam's attention. She is a material witness to a homicide. A devil is a person of interest. These two might be a threat to her safety. I couldn't help but grin at that. I had gone up against Stevie many times, and I doubt that she had ever lost sleep over my safety. But I let it pass. She was giving me time to think. Faye Hardaway has the alternative to leave at any time, should such be her intention, said the bot. Violence is to be deplored. It violates wisdom and thus has unwelcome effects. That didn't cheer me up much. The devils were big on wisdom. Only we had never figured out what they meant by it, other than it allowed them to kill half the population and rip the hearts out of the other half. But that wasn't violent, no. Disappearing someone was about as violent as blowing out a candle. Chief, said the mayor, I would think it's up to Faye. Do you agree? 
This had to gall the cops. The devils were the worst criminals in history, and they had the mayor dancing on a stick. Lieutenant, said C.G. Little, her voice like sandpaper. I think we have to take them at their word. She rested a hand on Stevie's shoulder. Everyone but the devil looked at me now. It had turned to the window. I wondered what it could see in the dark. I was tempted to say thanks, but no thanks, if only despite Siren. That was probably the smart move. But Smart and I didn't always get along. Sure, I said. I could use a break from Smick here. No offense, Lieutenant. As the mayor closed the door on us, she said, We'll be right outside if you need us. I wondered which of us she was talking to. Ten. I shivered. Not because of the chill in the office, but because I was remembering when Siren disappeared Gratiana. She had vanished with a surreal pop. There had been a rush of air, as if the room had gasped in surprise. She wouldn't have had time to suffer. Had she been killed or just sent someplace else? Maybe the same place all the men had gone? "'Something is regrettable, Faye Hardaway,' said the bot. Been a long night. I told myself then that I was done being scared. I was a P.I. I washed my face with battery acid and picked my teeth with ten-penny nails. I was mean as cancer. So why did I scuttle around the chief's desk and sit in her chair? To hide behind it, sure. Keep an obstacle between me and them. A weak move, but now I felt more like the self I needed to be. C.G. was making a statement with this desk. It was not quite as big as a bus. On it was a ship's clock, a silver trophy cup filled with pens and pencils, and a framed photo of a kid graduating from somewhere in a blue cap and gown. She looked like a travel-sized C.G. Little. I thought of the chief as a mom changing diapers all those years ago. For some reason, that helped. Before you start, I said, I have to ask, was Siren the devil I saw at the murder scene? No, said the bot. That stopped me. I was expecting a denial, but bots never gave simple answers when complicated ones would do. They had made torturing English into an art form. Well, then, does Siren know who that devil was? No. But there was a devil. Siren admits that. You asked a permission for one question and have now put three. One needs to remark, Faye Hardaway, that you alone were observer of these events. Siren has no direct awareness of them. But you're here because of what happened to Bahita Berry. The bot let that pass. I took my sidekick out of my pocket, pressed record, and placed it on the desk. What's this about, then? Siren has intention to task you to make certain inquiries. Lucky me. You have a client, Maud Descano. Look, I'm a private investigator. I shook my last smoke out of the pack. That means I like to keep my clients' identities confidential if I can. There was no ashtray, so I spilled the pencils and pens out of the trophy cup. This information has already been disclosed. To the cops, maybe. I lit up. Not to you. Siren has a curiosity in the matter of Renata Descano. Renata? For a moment I thought the bot had misspoke. You mean Anne. The daughter of Maud Descano was Renata Descano. She's dead. What's there to know? There are regrettable inconsistencies in the circumstance of her death. I heard it was suicide. I tried to picture a woman like Maud having doubts about her daughter's death, but I didn't have that good an imagination. Do you know different? The purpose of your investigation would be to resolve all inconsistency. It was easy for bots to stonewall, since they had no faces. The devil was busy doing its impression of a brick. What does this have to do with the Berry murder? This one has knowledge of your previous transaction with Siren. Are the same terms of employment acceptable? I'd earned $2,000 the last time I had worked for the devil, which was six months' income in a good year. That was five times what the old woman was paying. There was too damn much money fluttering around the Descanos and their problems. My nose twitches when a client tries to perfume a rotten case with the scent of cash. What do you need me for, anyway? I blew smoke at them. 
You've got the mayor sitting on your lap. Have her put the cops on this. Siren necessitates the true discretion that a Fay Hardaway can provide. Never police and never news. I ashed into the silver cup and considered how much freedom $2,000 could buy. I thought about a bigger apartment with a playroom, or at least a dishwasher. I thought about babysitters and dinners out and dancing. I'm not saying no and I'm not saying yes, but if this is really a problem, I need to see some evidence. Or is Siren playing some kind of hunch? My sidekick chirped. That didn't take long. But I needed a chance to study what Siren had sent before I made any moves. Okay, then. I stubbed my last cigarette out. I'll sleep on it. Can I give my answer to George? Siren knows him. He's the bot in my building. Siren flapped its wings as it launched off the credenza, then flapped twice more to regain balance on the landing. I felt the air move and caught a whiff of burning sugar. It wrapped itself in its wings and waddled toward the door. The bot, Sturro, regenerated its legs and arms and stumped after. As they let themselves out, the mayor let herself in, alone. You have unusual friends, Faye. She shut the door behind her. They're not my friends. I carried the cup over to C.G.'s wastebasket and emptied the ashes. I hate the devils. I don't suppose you want to tell me what Siren wants? I settled behind the desk and started putting pens and pencils back. No. She was thoughtful. I didn't think so. She sat on one of the wing chairs facing the desk. We can keep this quiet, at least for a while. Not the murder, but what you saw. Would that help? Help what? Whatever it is that you're trying to do? I laughed. <laughs> I'm just trying to stay sane in this cocked world. I try to do right if I can figure out what that is, and every so often I help someone find something she's lost. I aimed a pencil at her. Right now I'm trying to go home and sleep and see if any of this makes sense in the morning. I dropped it into the cup. What time is it? She glanced at a fossil wrist watch. 3.17. Only grannies wear watches. That's my bedtime, I said, but try telling that to Lieutenant Smick. C.G. Little claims I can trust you. Nice of her, but she hardly knows me. What does Stevie say? Apparently she has no use for P.I.s. She thinks you should have been a cop. We could see about that if you'd like. No, thanks. The uniform makes me look fat. She gave me a politician's smile, then leaned forward. Here's what I'm trying to do, Faye. Word gets out that a devil is suspected a homicide, a brutal homicide, and the crazies and the Christers will howl, even though there's nothing we can do. We can't arrest a devil for this. It's like trying to arrest a house fire or a tornado. But the old madness is still out there, so I'm trying to stop the riots before we write another damned chapter for Eller's Index of Human Dysfunction. If that means I have to tell the world that you didn't see what you saw, I'll do it. She pointed a finger at me, her expression grim as a grave. And if I have to tell the lieutenant to arrest you for being an accessory to murder, I'll do that, too, because I don't always have the luxury of doing what's right. Do you understand me? I chewed on that, but didn't much like the taste. Sure, I said. You're saying I'm cocked. She shook her head. I hate the devils, too, but I doubt their wisdom will allow them to stand back and watch this city burn down. When one of them shows up here at three in the morning, I'm hoping that means they have some kind of plan. She heaved herself out of the chair and looked like she aged a decade doing it. Since we want that plan to work, we're turning you loose. Do what you do, keep your mouth shut about what's happened, and let's see how smart they really are. How long do I have? How the hell should I know? She reached across the desk and shook my hand. Until you smell smoke. there. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you like what you're hearing on Free Reads, why not voice your approval? Post to Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, 
whatever. And keep my other publishing venture, the ebook James Patrick Kelly's Strange Ways, on Nook and Kindle, in mind as well. But above all, click back next week when Faye gets another case added to her load from a very unwelcome client on the Free Reads Podcast. 